Father, thank you for an uh, evening to gather together. God, thank you that, um, Lord, you are here with us. And so, Lord, hone in our minds, uh, cause us to be attentive to what your word has to say to us this evening. Lord, make us more like Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin our time together tonight, I want to refresh our minds from two weeks ago. I want to bring your minds back to this wonderful sermon, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached and that's recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. In this sermon, Jesus is addressing what true spiritual life with God should look like. He's talking about what should be true of a believer, and his intent is to get to the heart. This was God the Father's intent throughout the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament law. And in light of this, we saw there were two impacts coming off of this sermon. First, in laying out life of one who truly knows the Lord, many would come to realize that they, in fact, didn't know the Lord. The result then would be that they would see that they needed a new heart altogether. So this sermon was evangelistic in one sense. But the second impact of this wonderful sermon was actually to address the disciples regarding true spiritual life in Christ. Whether they were believers or not at the time, once they became believers, this sermon would serve as a guide and instruction for what their lives in Christ were to be like. And while having a new heart, if they lived this sort of life described by Jesus, the result would be they would experience blessing as the beatitude state. They would be salt and light. They would be perfect or mature in their faith, lacking in nothing. And they would be like a wise master builder, building their entire lives on Christ and then fleshing that out as they lived. So this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is getting at the true heart of spirituality. And if you'll open to Matthew chapter 5, what we looked at last time was verses 27 and 28. And just to kind of get a running start, I want to read those two verses again. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus speaking says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here the fact that he's addressing the heart is made explicitly clear. And we established two weeks ago that when a lustful look is granted in one's eyes, the heart behind it has already been sinful. Right? The look, the completion of that sin is just the final reaching out and grabbing onto uh, to fulfill what's already been in the heart. So with that as background, let's consider the next two verses that will form our next hard saying for this evening. Verse 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So here's the question I want to ask to begin. How in the world do these two verses fit in with the previous two verses? And here's why this is an issue. If Jesus is getting at the heart of the matter, then now here is he retracting that and appealing to outward expressions of religion? Because at first glance, it kind of appears that way. And so as we begin to answer this question tonight in unpacking these two verses, I want to first establish what this is not saying. First, this verse is not to be taken woodenly literal. In other words, Christians, believe it or not, we are not to be one-eyed, one-handed wonders who walk around masticating ourselves. 
That is not the intent of this verse. In fact, you just add the foot to it and we'd look like Captain Hook, right? But you don't see that. You don't see that in the church. You don't see that in the first century church. You don't see that today and there's good reason. In fact, from Scripture as to why we don't take this verse woodenly literal. First of all, it would go against other Scripture, right? 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 talk about honoring the body, using the body uh, within the means of marriage for good things. Uh, Secondly, none of the apostles or their followers masticated themselves. Thirdly, Jesus really does away with this just by the fact that he specifies the right hand and the right foot, or the right eye, not the foot, the right eye, right? Why? Because if he was truly after masochism, which he is not, then he would have just said, cut off your hands and cut off your eyes, or pluck out your eyes, right? Why is that an issue? If we cut off our right hand, our left hand's going to make up for twice as much sin. If we pluck out our right eye, the left eye is going to make up for twice as much. And so that clearly is not the intent. And I think even more than this, friends, this cannot be referring to self-mutilation because any sort of physical act like this shifts the blame from the heart to the body, right? And it would miss the entire point of this sermon and this passage. People could say, oh, well, my eyes just made me do it. Oh, I just couldn't help it. My eyes just wandered right? They could shift the blame to their eyes. Or, oh, I just had to have that thing. I don't even, it wasn't even me. My body just did it. Friends, this is a blame shift, right? It's a blame shift. It shifts the blame from your mind and your heart to an object that cannot bear the responsibility of sin, such as your eyes and your hands. And I'll just say this, a blind man and a paralyzed man can do the exact same sins as me and you in their hearts. They equally need a Savior. So this, for these reasons, it leads us away from a woodenly literal interpretation here. But drawing a little nearer to the correct understanding, there's still another pitfall that we have to consider. Having established that we don't need to go purchase a saw for our hand, we know that this is referring to taking radical action to remove sin in our lives. But the next pitfall is this. It's that thinking this and this alone will deliver us from sin. And what's this? I'm talking about radical action dealing with sin. In other words, if, if we hold this view that this and this alone will deal with sin, we are right back to where the Pharisees began, are we not? You remember this? What did the Pharisees say? They said, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, and you're good to go. Just do the, the letter of the law and you're good to go. Right? And they had completely missed it. They had missed the heart of God. They didn't know God. Their hearts were far from Him. They had essentially reduced spirituality to some physical commands to obey. And friends, if we're not careful, we'll end up in the same place from this text. Many well-meaning Christians have come to some terrible conclusions from misinterpreting this passage. Right? You may recall I mentioned early church father Origen, who upon reading this passage had himself castrated. But there's another story of a saint named St. Anthony. St. Anthony lived a hermit's life. He fasted. He did without sleep. He tortured his body. And in fact, in this day, many monks would go to the desert to abandon themselves to try to flee temptation. For 35 years, he lived in the desert. And these 35 years were a a nonstop battle with sin. A nonstop battle without respite regarding his temptations. The story is told in his biography. First of all, the devil tried to lead him away from discipline, whispering to him the remembrance of his wealth, 
claims of kindred, cares for a sister, love of money, love of glory, the various, various pleasures of the table and other relaxations of life, and at least the difficulty of virtue and the labor of it. The one would suggest, referring to the devil, foul thoughts, and the other would counter them with prayers. The one would fire him with lust. The other, as one who seemed to blush, he would fortify his body with prayers, faith, and fasting. The devil one night took upon him the shape of a woman and imitated all of her ways simply to beguile Anthony. So for 35 years, the struggle went on. Friends, the answer to sin and temptation is not merely external acts. We've got to get a little bit deeper than the body. The solution is not merely external conformity or external religion. There's got to be something more. So what then does this mean? What is this passage referring to? How does it fit with the previous two verses? How does it fit with the Sermon on the Mount as a whole and for that matter, Scripture as a whole? Well, to begin to understand this, I thought an analogy or a comparison might be helpful. And I think the fitting comparison would be to think about baptism. In baptism, we know a genuinely born-again born Christian steps forward in obedience to the Lord's commands. Right? Baptism is both a public declaration of one's newfound faith in Christ and at the same time a corporate identification. In other words, it forces the individual to take their faith public not allowing for anyone to be a recluse Christian. And at the same time, it identifies them with the people of God for the sake of the people of God. Now, baptism, we know, doesn't add or subtract uh, from one's salvation or their eternal security. But I want to submit this to you. If someone never goes public with their faith, and if they never identify with a local church body, what are the chances of this person's faith surviving? How genuine is their faith? In other words, it would seem from both Scripture and experience that when someone is born again, there is a willingness to be baptized because there's a newfound joy in declaring what God has done in their life. There's a joy in fellowshipping and intermingling with other believers. And so, if someone has no desire to testify of what God's done in their life and no desire to identify with the people of God, and to add to this, they don't care about blatantly disobeying Christ's command to be baptized after placing faith in Him, then it seems justifiable to have reason for concern about the genuineness of their faith. Well, in the same manner, now let's think, look at Matthew 5 and think about this for a minute. Jesus is talking about the heart, right? He's talking about the heart over and over and over again. But now he says that you must physically do things in order to rid sin from your life. And really, it works the same way. Just like someone who never takes the step of baptism has perhaps greater chances of falling away. Likewise here, if someone does not deal with sin radically, their chances of falling away are increased. Let me ask, in baptism, can someone who is a, not a true believer go and be baptized and think that they've achieved something? Sure. Can they say all the right things and be baptized, yet not be a believer? Doing that as an external form of religion. Sure, they can do that. It does nothing. Water doesn't save, right? The cleansing of water does nothing. Christ saves and Christ alone. Well, in the same way, if someone's heart is full of sin and it's unregenerate, and yet they try to apply Matthew 5, 29, and 30, these two verses, they're just washing the outside of the cup. They're just cleansing the outside of the tomb. And an unbeliever may be brought to understand the seriousness of sin from this passage and therefore be born again, but I want to submit to you this. 
The real takeaway of this passage is for the believer to make war on sin. It's for the believer to make war on sin. And this is where we depart for a minute from the baptism analogy. While with baptism, I believe someone could not be baptized and they could still do okay. Right? They could still maybe float along in the Christian life. I think it's disobedience. It's not a matter of salvation. Uh, but it's a good idea. Here, though, if you disobey this command from Jesus and you're claiming to have faith, I'm not convinced you're going to make it. I'm not convinced your faith will endure. Therefore, friends, this verse must be understood and applied in our lives tonight before we leave. So let's dig our teeth into it a bit more. In the context, Jesus has been addressing the heart. And it's not that he now breaks from that and begins teaching external morality, but quite the opposite. In fact, he's going to further illuminate the same thing that he's been saying and teaching already. To understand this, though, we first have to understand this. We have to understand Jesus' view of man. Both Scripture as a whole and Jesus have the anthropologic view, the view of mankind, that man is one person composed of an inner man and an outer man. In other words, Jesus doesn't wish to separate the inner man, the mind, the thoughts, the will, and the outer man, the body, the actions, and so forth. That's why in Mark 7, just as an example, he says, that which comes out of the mouth originates in the heart. Right? We know from Scripture, God tells us that man is one person who's interconnected in his soul, his heart, his mind, and his body. Or simply put, the inner man plus the outer man equals the whole man. That's the view of Scripture of mankind. So in lieu of this, how does the physical body, and here's where we're going with this, how does the physical body tie in with the spiritual state of the soul? Is there a connection? In other words, how does the body tie in with the heart? And do we have to divorce the two? Well, really, it's quite simple. The heart is the first place to begin. If the heart is not regenerate, then trying to change external behavior is useless. It'd be like a pig. I was trying to think of an analogy. This is really lame. I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. It would be like a pig trying to take a 17-year-old gal to prom. Okay? The pig can dress himself up in a tuxedo. He can go and try to learn how to drive a limo. He can try to learn how to order something from a restaurant. You know what? The pig's never going to get a date. The pig is never going to be able to successfully take a gal to prom. What needs to happen to this pig? This pig needs to be transformed into a human. He needs to be altogether recreated, regenerated, so that he's a new species altogether. He needs to have happen what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says happens, that there's a new creature in Christ. He needs to have a new heart before God. And friends, if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, that's what you need too. Right? You need a new heart before God. You need to be a new creature in Christ by placing your faith in Him. But then, if your faith is in Him, if you've been regenerated, if you have spiritual life and God lives in you, then this outward action of Matthew 5, 29 and 30 is simply a means to guarding and protecting the heart. I'm going to say that a lot tonight. It's a means of guarding the heart and protecting the heart. This is how these two verses connect with the previous two. In verses 27 and 28, he said that adultery begins in the heart and it is completed with the look. And now in verses 29 and 30, we see that the heart and mind use the eye and the hand to pander its lust. Therefore, the heart is still the real culprit, not the body. 
The blame is not shifted from the heart to the body. The heart is still the culprit. The heart is still what we're focused on. Okay, then what role does the hand and the eye play? Right, we're trying to figure this out. What am I supposed to do with this verse? What role does the hand and the eye play? And I think one theologian said it well. He said this, Obviously, getting rid of harmful influences will not change a corrupt heart into a pure heart. Outward acts cannot produce inner benefits. But just as the outward act of adultery reflects a heart that is already adulterous, the outward act of forsaking whatever is harmful reflects a heart that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That outward act is effective protection because it comes from a heart that seeks to do God's will instead of its own. I think that's well put. The mouth speaks and the body acts, friends, as an overflow of what's in the heart. And so I think we can effectively say that there's an aspect of shepherding your own heart here that we see in these two verses. Now, one of the primary means that you can shepherd your own heart is by getting the temptation out of your face. In other words, can you imagine an alcoholic trying to come off of alcoholism and going and sitting in the bar to do it? Young men, if you are battling pornography, can you imagine trying to overcome this sin sitting in front of a computer where there's pop-ups happening all the time or putting yourself in an atmosphere where you know you're going to be tempted? It's just absurd to think about any of these scenarios, and yet we do that often. So what Jesus is saying is to take radical action in order to guard the heart. He's not teaching some form of uh, external moralism. He's still talking about the heart, and yet there's a connection with the body. Now, the phrase that Jesus actually uses, if you look at verse 29 and 30, he says, if your right eye or your right hand make you stumble... And the word for stumble here is skandalon, which means stumbling block. And this is interesting. It referred to a bait stick in a trap. In other words, it was the stick or the arm on which a bait was fixed and operated to, to try to catch an animal lured into its own destruction. Interestingly, though, the word can also refer to a stone that's on a path that trips you as you're walking and causes you to fall. And so the idea really behind this word, both ideas apply, is that it's something that trips you up and at the same time brings a man to destruction. And so friends, what's the application here? Why use this word? Here's why. You've got to watch out for a stumbling block. And where is this stumbling block? Is it out there somewhere? Is it on the path? No, the stumbling block are not on the paths that we're walking on. The stumbling blocks are in our own hearts. That's where the battle's taking place. I've got stumbling blocks in here that I've got to watch out for. I have to navigate my own heart and shepherd it. You see, here's the thing. Even for a believer, the flesh still remains. Though sin's penalty is covered and though sin has been subdued, the sinful flesh still remains, even in the believer. Therefore, one major aspect of the Christian life, if you're a believer here tonight, is to purge sin out of the heart and to continue to subdue the flesh. And I think this is a helpful way to think of it. Christianity is not merely externalism, but it's not merely internalism either. It's both, right? It's dealing with the heart and what we do and our bodies. The spiritual war that we're engaged in is both. Now, in light of the fact that the stumbling blocks occur in our own hearts, do you think this is a passive battle that takes place? 
Can I just nonchalantly engage in this sort of warfare as I make war on sin? I mean, even as I use the word war, does that kind of bring to mind laziness and idleness and passivity? No, right? This is a very intense and serious battle. This is serious business. And I'll just say the battle of the Christian, of the Christian life is a battle for your hearts. That's what Jesus is teaching. Everything around you is feeding your heart. Did you know that? Media, school, friends, work, even what you do is feeding your heart. You are feeding your heart by what you listen to, who you hang out with, what you talk about. And in light of the seriousness of this battle, it's really no surprise then that Jesus speaks with great intensity when giving this command. Look again at verse 29. I'm going to read the first part. He says, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. And look at verse 30, the first part. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. So here we really see Jesus dealing intensely, commanding his followers to deal intensely with sin in their lives. And first we observe that he refers to the right hand and the right eye. Now, just as a bit of historical background, in the first century, the right hand and the right eye were the most valued things a person had, right? And maybe we agree today, we use our right hand, those of us that are uh, <clears throat> normal. <laughs> My wife is one of those weird ducks that uses her wrong hand. Um, but most of us, yeah, no offense lefties, but it is called the right hand for a reason. <laughs> most of us use our right hand and we're right eye dominant, right? And there's a reason for that. Um, the right eye was the best eye. The right hand was typically the best hand. And it was thought that all sin, if you think about this, all sin stems from these two things. What you see and therefore what you think. And with your hands, what you do, right? It really hit on the thoughts and the actions. And in fact, in the Old Testament, the eye is blamed as the way of sin many, many times all through Ezekiel. Uh, in Proverbs 20, 21, verse 4, it says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. Ezekiel 20, verse 8, God condemning Israel says, But they rebelled against me. They were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes. So, we need to note, though, that the significance is not on the right eye versus the left eye or the right hand versus the left hand, all joking aside. But it's that the right hand would have been the acting agent of sin, right? So what's the point? And I, I think the implication is this. It doesn't matter how valuable something is, right? Back then, maybe they'd be willing to give their left hand, but not their right. The right hand would have been very valuable. It doesn't matter how valuable something is. It pales in comparison to the seriousness of sin. If it's causing you to sin, simply put, get rid of it. Even to the point of the most precious things that you have. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if the most precious thing you have is the cause of sin, get rid of it. And friends, just to get real practical for a moment, if your computer causes you to sin... Get rid of it. If your phone causes you to sin, get rid of it. Get an old phone. Get a dumb phone. If you're going to a dance causes you to sin, stop going to the dance. If certain movies cause you to sin, stop watching them. Gals, if going shopping or doing whatever you do causes you to sin, <laughs> stop doing it. Right? If those little gal hangout nights are causing you to sin, don't do them anymore. 
Friends, here's the point though. On a serious note, anything that causes you to sin, no matter the value, must be considered expendable for the sake of the soul. This is a hard saying by Jesus because he's setting forth the importance of dealing with sin, the seriousness of sin, the priority that sin needs to be given, and he's really answering the question, how critical is it that I eliminate sin from my life? How critical is it that I eliminate sin from my life? And so this command comes with great intensity. And in light of this com- the intensity of this command, I want to introduce to you a doctrine coming out of this text and just spend a couple minutes on it because I believe this is one of the key texts in developing the doctrine of radical amputation. And the reason I want to expand on this for a moment because I want us to feel the weight of what Jesus is talking about here from the rest of Scripture as well that we might apply it accurately. And so, friends, for a believer with a new heart, the means of radical amputation that Jesus describes here will be a tool for protecting and guarding your heart. Now, within this doctrine, volumes have been written. 1600s, John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. Excellent. Uh, But this doctrine, you need to know, is truly and thoroughly biblical as well. If you'd like, flip to Colossians chapter 3. To begin, this quick divergence, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. I'm reading out of the NASB. It says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to adultery. Really, the the word here is put to death. It's also translated in the KJV as mortify or ESV again, put to death. And it's emphatic in this verse. It's the very first word that appears. And it means to slay, to render, to, to render as weak or render as unpowerful, impotent, The the parsing of this verb indicates that there's a killing of earthly, fleshly members holistically. It's an imperative command that you must do this. You must holistically put to death the members of your flesh. And so we see the beginning of this idea of radical amputation. It's the killing of sinful members of one's body. As an example of this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul had done this himself. In verse 27, he says, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. Why? So that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So Paul had brought his body under subjection. He had really accomplished this in his life to the point that he could say, follow me as I follow Christ one chapter later. And really, this is a necessity for anyone who preaches the gospel so that they can't be accused of hypocrisy. But where I really want to develop this is in the book of Romans. So if you've got a Bible, you've got to see this for yourself. Romans chapter 6. Just a couple books after Matthew if you're still there. Romans chapter 6. I'm just going to highlight a few verses. And first, what's neat about this is Paul lays out indicatives. He lays out truths about Christians. He informs you of what your life in Christ ought to be like. In Romans chapter 6, look at verse 6. He says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And then look at verse 11. He says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so again, Paul is informing us in this wonderful chapter about our position 
regarding sin and our position with God through Christ. He's, he's helping you understand where you stand with sin. And then verse 12 is the application. Therefore, imperative coming, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Friends, this command is not an option. In light of who you are, if you're in Christ, this command is not an option. And this command ought to be a reality. We ought not be obeying the lusts of our flesh. Why? Because we have the power not to. That's exactly what we've been redeemed from. Christ has set us free from the power of sin. Therefore, in Christ, we do not have to allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies. Again, go to Romans 8. Now Paul circles back around and he's talking about life in the Spirit. I want to just read a chunk for you and, and notice the indicatives here. Notice him putting forth truths about the Christian life. Romans chapter 8, I'll start in verse 5. He said, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Okay, he's talking about unbelievers here. For those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. Why? For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though, the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And verse 11, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. If you even picked out a few things in there, then hopefully if you're a believer, you're encouraged, right? You've seen what is true about a believer. And sometimes we need to re be reminded about what's true. Sometimes in the midst of battling sin, we need to be encouraged. Oh wait, this can be true. I can overcome this sin. Christ has done this for me and he lives in me and he set me free from that. But look at the application. Verse 12. So then, brothers... We are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Friends, again, this is just, it's not an option. This is a command. This is a command from God. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. I just think of this. If you had cancer, would you not take every measure possible to try to eliminate it. It wouldn't matter how much money. It wouldn't matter if you had to take some time off of work, take a leave. It wouldn't matter if you had to drop out of school for a semester. What extent would you go if you had terminal cancer and you knew it? Yet we drag our feet with spiritual cancer. We drag our feet with that which can not only destroy the body, but the soul. It just doesn't make sense. Well, one last verse on radical amputation. Romans chapter 13, verse 14. He says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. This is the doctrine of radical amputation. To summarize it, it's the belief that every measure of extreme action that is possible should be taken in order to eliminate sin from your life. It's really about making war on sin in order to shepherd your heart. 
Okay? It's about making war on sin in order to shepherd your own heart. Now, the goal here is not just killing sin for the sake of killing sin, but it's killing sin for the sake of Christ-likeness, right? That we would be more like Christ. That's the reason we kill sin. But it's not just about killing sin. I want to introduce one more thing here, then we'll jump back to Matthew. Right? You guys played that whack-a-mole game where all the moles pop up and you're... Anyone? Okay, good. So you've played that game, right? If we're only killing sin, we're just going to get discouraged. We're just going to be like, oh, oh, and then it pops up over here, and you're over here, and back over here. And a little bit, that's kind of what life's like anyways, right? We're going to be killing sin. But I want to submit to you, there's another aspect of this too. There's a put off, and there's a what? A put on, right? There's a put on. If we're dealing with sin at the heart level, then it also involves putting on holiness and righteousness, and with one small step, we find ourselves to another awesome principle in Scripture, which is put on and put off. Put off first, then put on. Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to dig into this more, uh, both hit on this. Really, Romans 13 hits on it. And it's imperative that we are not only killing sin, but also putting on godliness. If we're emptying our heart of the wickedness, we need to fill it with good things, Right? We need to have uh, both a push and a pull, right? In other words, you can't just play defense. You've got to play some offense, too, for those who play sports. You can't just plop down in the middle of the court, either. You've got to be doing something, and you've got to be playing both sides of the ball, right? You can't just pull the weeds. You have to water the flowers. That's the Christian life, friends. That's the Christian life. It's killing sin and putting on godliness. Maybe you're thinking, man, oh, gosh, that sounds like a lot of work. I don't know if I'm really up for this. It sounds pretty intense, and I don't know, is it really worth it? I mean, I'll just kind of keep believing in Jesus and keep living my life how I'm doing it right now. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. I think Jesus answers this concern. Second half of verse 29, he says, For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Second half of verse 30, he says it again. He says, For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for, you to, for your whole body to go into hell. Guys, Jesus' words here really communicate the urgency of this command. We've looked at the intensity, and as we begin to wind down, I want to look at the urgency of this command. And friends, I just want to say this. There's nothing more valuable than your soul right? Within your life, there's nothing more valuable than your soul. The contrast that Jesus is establishing is between the soul and everything else that can cause you to sin, even your body. And this hyperbole is to illustrate that even the most important things that are necessary to a functional lifestyle, if you don't have a hand and an eye, you're not living a functional lifestyle, even those things pale in comparison to the importance of the soul. The heart and the soul is the focus here. And here's the, here's the connection. Okay, here's the connection. The body's actions reflect the state of the soul. In other words, what you do is who you are. Some of you don't like to hear that. But what you do is who you are. And as Jesus addresses the sinning eye and the sinning hand, the soul is what is ultimately on the line. Let's just say you begin to take steps in following Christ. You're maybe just kind of getting involved in things, but you maybe have some measure of faith, and yet you don't take seriously sin. It won't be long before you're shipwrecked altogether. 
That's why Jesus brings in the consequence of having one's entire body cast into hell. Practically, one's entire body will be given over to sinful thoughts and then looks and then actions and eventually a whole lifestyle of sin. We know from Scripture, sin is progressive. It doesn't just settle. It continues and it builds. And then you grow numb at a new level and it builds and you grow numb at a new level. And one commentator said that we must kill the sin in the eye else the eyes lust and flame your entire body and take you right down to hell. The risk is ultimately eternal hell and separation from God. And being then that the high risk and high consequences of this are hell, friends, I want to submit there's nothing more urgent in your life right now than this. In fact, it's impossible for any sort of urgency to surpass this. This is the most serious and urgent thing in your world right now. The state of your soul. It's more urgent than the test that you have. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe next week. Maybe in a month. Okay, you fail the test. You drop out of school. Not as urgent. Okay, you're at work. You're working hard. You're late to work one day. And I'm not advocating be lazy on your test. Not at all. But I'm comparing. There is nothing more urgent than your soul. Your friend post something on Facebook and you forget to reply back, heaven forbid, a birthday wish or something like that, <laughs> right? There are no relationships in your life that are as important as your own soul. I loved how Tanner, our, our former pastor here, used to, he would ask people straight up, he would sit down and just say, how's your soul? He would ask, how is your soul? Friends, we need to put our soul and its destiny above all else on our priority list. And I think of Matthew chapter 10, just a few chapters later, verse 28. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. And then a few chapters later, he says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Give attention to your soul. The matter of radical amputation of sin is extremely urgent. Your soul is at risk. Now, as we close, I want to just uh, point out a few takeaways from this evening. And these will be somewhat review, but I just want to put them before you again before we close in prayer. And first, there's nothing more important than the condition of the soul. Jesus, time and time again, points our direction and our focus to the spiritual rather than the physical. He points our uh, uh, focus to the eternal rather than the present. He focuses it on heaven rather than on earth. It's so easy for us to lose focus of this, isn't it? It's so easy for us to get wrapped up in this life right now, physical things that I can see, and not think about the spiritual realm, not think about eternity, not think about the kingdom, not think about God. Friends, put priority on soul care, on shepherding your own heart. I can't help but think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.16. He says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. And the point here is that Paul was going to view no one according to their ethnic race, according to their uh, social economic status, according to their gender, anything. Paul was going to view people on the basis of them being eternal and living souls. He was going to view people as people. That ought to be our perspective too. As we view others, we ought to be thinking about souls and that their soul is more important than them liking me. And likewise, we need to give that attention to our own souls as well. 
Second takeaway is that sin has consequences. And we've talked about the progressive nature of sin. We've talked about the value of the soul. But one thing we didn't talk about really are the consequences of sin, particularly pertaining to marriage. If you plan to be married or if you're married, this sin, particularly sexual immorality, it will have an impact on it. It will. If you've lived a pure life, or if you've had seasons of purity, then it's going to be a blessing. If you've struggled, there are going to be consequences for it. And yes, there's forgiveness. But friends, the farther into this you go, the harder it's going to be for your spouse. It may even be a stumbling block for a potential future spouse. I'm not saying this to be mean. I'm not saying this to be preachy or a jerk. I'm saying this for your own benefit. Make war on this sin. There are consequences. Yes, in lots of areas of life, but even in marriage in particular. So think about that before you sin next time. And I just think of this quote. It's in a song. It's an old quote. I don't know who said it first. Casting Crown said it in one of their songs. Um, anyone go to that concert? Yeah, that was great. It says this, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever thought you'd pay. Sin has consequences. Thirdly and finally, take radical measure to weed out sin in your life. Right? We talked about this already, but I just want to, again, present it to you and say, what are you going to change? What resolutions are you going to make in order to pursue godliness and flee sin and temptation? He's given you the ability. Read Romans chapter 6. I challenge you to read Romans chapter 6 and read Romans chapter 8. You have the ability Okay? You've got the Word of God. You've got the Spirit of God. You've got the people of God. If you're in Christ, I should say, you have the ability. Do whatever it takes to eliminate sin. Shepherd your heart. And in the end, we give praise to Jesus, right? We give praise to Jesus who's delivered us from the penalty of sin. He's given us the ability to overcome the power of sin. And ultimately, He will deliver us altogether from the presence of sin. Friends, will you bow your heads just for a moment? As we've considered this, I just want you to reflect where you're seated on sin in your life because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of where. And I'm talking to myself too. I want you to think about the temptation and the sin in your life and think about how are you engaging in warfare on it? What measures have you taken to overcome sin in your life. If you've got the Spirit of God living in you, you have the ability. You've got all the resources to do this. And further, it is God's will. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, it is God's will for your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Friends, make war on sin. This is the charge from the Apostle Paul through the Spirit recorded in the Word of God. Make war on sin. And Father, we come to you tonight in desperate need of your grace. Lord, these things are too uh, daunting to overcome. So Lord, would you encourage your people here tonight? Would you give them the motivation, Lord, the discipline? So much in your word about discipline. Give them the discipline, Lord, to pursue godliness and to flee sin or to radically amputate whatever it is in their life that's causing them to sin. Would they take radical measures, God, in order to shepherd and care for their own heart? 
Lord, our hearts are wicked. Even as redeemed and regenerated believers, our hearts stray. Lord, therefore, extreme measure must be taken. And God, for those, of here, the, those men and women who are here tonight who don't know you, who maybe think they know you, but they don't really know what it's like to have close fellowship with you, to have the Spirit of God living in them, to know Christ personally. Lord, we pray for them collectively. We lift them up to you and pray that you would change their hearts. God, bring them to the joy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ who has delivered us from sin, who has paid for the penalty of sin. Lord, he's removed all guilt of sin. He is our righteousness, our justification, Lord. God, would they come to know this Christ who loves them, who gave himself for them, and who perhaps is calling them tonight. God, use your body to minister to unbelievers here tonight, Lord. Lord, use them to usher them to the eternal King. God, the King who is better than anything this world has to offer. Thank you, Lord, that you are truly satisfying. Lord, that you fill every void of our empty hearts God, with joy and satisfaction that this world knows nothing of offering. Father, would your spirit do its work tonight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.